HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. Look for their newest line, Pristine, the only complete line of pet food made with responsibly sourced ingredients. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org slash pets. My name is Hannah Forden. I'm the membership coordinator at Heritage Radio Network, but even before I joined the team, I loved listening to HRN during my subway commute. It made the time go quickly and left me feeling inspired for the day ahead. HRN listeners tune in from all over the world, but there are a few traits that we all have in common, no matter where we listen from. A curious palate, the fierceness to make a difference, and a hunger for lifelong learning about the culinary world. As you know, Heritage Radio Network is a listener-supported nonprofit. To deliver the most ambitious, entertaining, and of-the-moment stories in 2018, we need your help. We need to raise $150,000 by December 31st to accomplish these goals and to keep your favorite shows on the air. Together, we can make this HRN's most exciting, impactful, and delicious year yet. Become a member by donating today. Join us at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate, and you'll immediately start enjoying benefits such as VIP invitations to HRN events, where you will mix and mingle with your favorite hosts. Memberships also make a perfect holiday gift for all the foodies in your life. This year, why not give the gift of food radio? You'll hear your generosity in action for the year to come. Help keep our lights on and our mics hot by pledging your support today at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for listening. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, as always on this journey through culinary history. And you know, it's rare to pick up a cookbook and be transported to another time, another place. And this recent cookbook that I picked up was so engaging, that's exactly what happened to me. It wasn't just a cookbook as a memoir, although it was a memoir, but it was part cookbook, part history guide, part 
uh, family tradition. The book is Pantry and Palate, Remembering and Rediscovering Acadian Food by Simon Thibault. And Simon is my guest today. It The book is, I have to confess, I really didn't know much about Acadia or Acadian food. No, not much, nothing. And this book really is a wonderful introduction and more than that, but a, a cooking guide through that history. Each recipe is adapted from Simon's own family collection or other women's auxiliaries within the region. And it, the resulting book is, is really quite unique. Simon writes not as an outsider, but he is an Acadian. And he's based in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and is a food writer, a journalist, and does radio production as well. He, his works have been featured on CBC Radio, The Globe and Mail, Vice, Munchies, and Southern Foodways Alliance here in the States, The Coast, and many more. He's produced content for CBC Radio in the Maritimes, as well as for national syndication. He has produced documentaries about culinary reconnections between Acadians and Cajuns, and we're going to hear more about that. And that was what he did for, obviously, the Southern Foodways Alliance podcast called Gravy. And I, he, he's, I'm, I'm looking here at the bio. He's written for all kinds of different, done production for so many different organizations. And in fact, he was also a judge for the James Beard Foundation Awards. And it's my pleasure to welcome him to the show. And he joins us today from Halifax by phone. Welcome, Simon. That's quite the introduction. Thank you so much. <laughs> I could go on. Believe me, there's <laughs> plenty of information that I found. But I have to say that you had me on this book as soon as I saw, okay, or your publicist did, as soon as I saw <laughs> Acadian food. As I say, I, I, I know, knew nothing. I know a lot now, as it stands, but I knew nothing about Acadian food and very little about Acadia, really. I mean, you know, some sketchy details, but give us a little background on Acadia. I'm sure most of us are, are a little in the blank about that. Sure. Um, excuse me. Thank you for having me, though. Like, that was... Um the whole thing about uh, Acadia or Acadie, um, if you, um, for a lot of Americans, if they know anything at all about Acadians, it's usually two connections. One, Acadia National Park over in Maine. Right. And two, um, the Cajuns, which are our cousins in a certain way. Um, but the Acadians, basically, um, we are the descendants of the first French colonists and settlers to what is now... Um, Atlantic Canada, so what is now Newfoundland, uh, sorry, what is now um, Prince Edward Island, uh, New Brunswick, and Nova Scotia, which is where I live. And in between 1755 and uh, 1765, because we did not see ourselves essentially as French citizens, we did not, uh, and also because we would not sign fealty to the British Crown, that last one is the one that cinched it and that we were forcibly removed from the land that we were occupying, um, and then we were dispersed. Well, the version is that some of us ended up in Louisiana, and some of us ended up in Maine, and uh, some of us ended up in uh, what is now the Maritimes of Atlantic Canada. Uh-huh. And that was called the Great Expulsion, was it not? I mean, that was 
or the, the not, not the great, not meaning good, but you know, a lot of people. No, true. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Exactly. So it's now it's now a different, a more contracted area, or um, in the Maritimes that is considered Acadia. Well, Acadia really, or Acadie, Acadie uh, which is the term that's usually used, um, never really. Doesn't hasn't really existed for over 250 years, really, as a geographic region. I kind of take the the idea that Acadie, if anything, exists mostly in people's hearts and in their souls and in their blood more than anything else. There are Acadian regions. Um, there are Acadian regions of Nova Scotia, like I grew up in what is now southwestern Nova Scotia. And there are Acadians there. There are Acadians in parts of Cape Breton. Uh, there are Acadians in certain parts of PEI. And in, there is what is known as the Acadian Peninsula in New Brunswick. But as like Acadie as a nation hasn't really existed for 250 years, really. Hmm. So it's one of those things that like when you're talking about a people and you're talking about um, what it means to be who you are, from a historical context, it's always one of those things of, like, nationality doesn't really fit into it in the terms of, like, how we now view nationalism or nationality. It's always like, no, I am who I am, and I live amongst other people, and I still am very fervently who I am within my own cultural context. No, I, I think that's that's really quite, uh, I think, uh, uh, quite trendy and forward to be considered that way. I think that's, I think that's a good way to, to consider oneself. Um, you yeah, know, I consider Acadians to be pretty much post-colonial. Uh-huh, right. <laughs> We're colonists, but we've become post-colonial in so many ways. <laughs> right. Um, and yet there is that connection from the 17th century with uh, the, if you will, the Midwest section of France where most of the settlers came, right? Indeed, yeah. Yeah. Um, and yet, you don't really, I mean, as far as the people of Quebec, the, the New French, or the, from New France, they, it's, there's a difference um, from what I read about in the food and in, the, and in, in your um, background and culture. Yeah, it's, I mean, with Quebecers or les Québécois, it's very much, there are uh, Quebecers of Acadian heritage, of course, um, but... Quebec, as in of itself, where people came from, from France when they went there, that's one thing. And also, Quebec existed within the idea that um, we are all French, while Acadians tended to live amongst other French-speak, other, uh, other, amongst around English-speaking people. So, like, I grew up in a French-speaking enclave within a English-speaking speaking province. And that affects the way that you see yourself a lot of the times, especially hmm. because you see yourself as being linguistically and possibly culturally other. Hmm. Interesting. And yet a lot of, well, we'll get to that, but a lot of the recipes um, from that you, that you researched through your family were written in English. Yeah. Um, well, the, the one thing, not just written in English, but also just influenced by so many other cultures around us, which mm-hmm. is why I kind of like to say that Acadians tend to be kind of post-colonial, meaning that because we had been dispersed when we came back, when we were allowed back onto the land where many of us uh, still occupy today, um, we came in contact with other communities. Um, Acadians came in contact with Germans, with the English, Irish, Scottish, 
uh, German and uh, loyalists, actually, within, even within like the United States, a lot of people who left uh, the American colonies and who moved to what is now Canada because of their then loyalty to the crown, we came in contact with those people. And some of those people were all from all the way down to North Carolina. And that brought the tradition of using cornmeal in certain things. And um, the German brought the whole use of... Uh, potatoes in a very specific way, and all these things kind of mishmash together to create the larder that lives amongst Acadians. Well, I'm, and I love what, what was said in the, um, I guess in one of the blurbs, it said, a small but mighty larder that holds history within itself. Uh, and what, what's the meaning behind that, small but mighty larder? Uh, meaning that basically... The thing with Acadians is people often ask me, well, like, what is Acadian food? And I always like to jokingly say it's food that's homey, it's food that's humble, and it's not necessarily the sexiest food, but it's very sustaining and very comforting. Mm-hmm. Um, the small but mighty thing is you're basically dealing with people who were, for the longest time, dealing with questions of subsistence. These were people who either were fishermen or farmers, um, which is something I think a lot of people especially um, – can, re- can relate to if you go back in time, but you're basically dealing with people who oftentimes were on places which weren't necessarily the most arable for land. Like in Nova Scotia, where the Acadians first settled, was really beautiful land, and when they came back, the places where they went to weren't necessarily the best places for growing things. So you may do with what you have, and so that small but mighty larder are... Um, salted meats, so like salt pork or salt beef, um, also uh, salted onions or herbs, but we'll get to that later. Mm-hmm. Um, lard, lots of potatoes, root vegetables, and even though we were surrounded oftentimes by by uh, bodies of water, the uh, food was often the those that seafood was done in very much in the simplest way possible. Mostly not just because the fact that. Um, seasonings were a little bit more difficult to come by, but historically speaking, but realistically, I mean, I grew up in the French-speaking and fishing community, and at my household, we never used butter with lobster, because my parents were always of the mind of, like, it tastes good enough on its own. You should eat it as it is. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting advice. (laughs) Um, Well, you know, I was, as I um, started to read, or actually read the book, read through the book, and then researched some other um, uh, information I could find that I could find on Acadian mm. food. Um, I ran across, uh, you know, somebody who said there were no written books about food. Nothing existed for a couple of hundred years. Um, it was all yeah. basically the food heritage that was preserved and passed down in households. And that's exactly where you began with your research, right? Well, no, there was a book, and you and you make reference to that book. Um, a taste of Acadia. Um, yeah, it right. was it was originally written as the, the it was originally written in French in 1972 or 74 uh, by two uh, people from New Brunswick, and it wasn't translated into English until 2001. So, except for that, and perhaps a few other like very tiny independent press uh, kind of things or ladies' auxiliary community books. community oh, cookbooks. Right? Yeah, yeah, all right. No, sorry, go ahead. I, I said, like, community cookbooks. I'm sorry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so there were, it was really difficult to get through it all. And what happened was, 
um, when I started doing the research for this book, I kept on looking all over the place. I looked at everything from agricultural records to folk history and folk wisdom. And what I kept finding was very little. Um, and then I was talking about the research for this book with my own mother, and she said, well, you do realize that I have my mother's notebooks, right? Which was this big old lightning rod. Just <laughs> uh-huh. kind of like, oh, my God, I can do this. And... Um, I was a little bit of a loss before that as well, and um, Naomi Dukat, who wrote the foreword for the book, uh, yes. Naomi's a yeah. wonderful writer whose work has influenced me immeasurably. Um, she kind of was my mentor in all of this. And she said, just write the recipes. And then it was a, le- a week later, my mother told me about the recipe booklets, which were her mother's. And what they were, they were this really beautiful repository of early 20th century food traditions. Um they were her mothers, her grandmothers, her great aunts, and it was really amazing just to go digging through them. And as you had said earlier on, most of the uh, most of the things were written actually in English. The and some were written in French as well. But it was oftentimes like anything that was written in English, I soon realized were recipes that may have been given from either Anglophone friends or from uh, publicity materials, which would have been distributed. Mm-hmm. Um, anything that was written in French usually had a small credit to whom uh, the recipe originally came from, which was kind of amazing and illuminating. But the the wonder and the difficulty of writing the book and doing the research for the recipes was that very few of the recipes had any directions. These were basically cold notes and memory tricks for this woman to be able to cook herself. So I had to figure out how to do a lot of those. <laughs> well, now, was it your grandmother who actually went to culinary school? Yeah. Uh, my grandmother, um, she passed away when I was four or five, so I never really got to know her. Her name was Rosalie. Uh, Rosalie. And um, Rosalie, when she was 16, finished high school and wanted to go to college to become a teacher. But because she was too young to go, her brother, who was a priest, sent her to uh, the Ursuline College in Trois-Rivières in Quebec. Now, this was the first and oldest school for women um, in North America, and she went and studied les arts ménagers, or home economics. And we think today of home economics in the sense of uh, how do you boil an egg, how do you cook a few basic things, but this was truly in the sense of how to run a household uh, and also the ec- the true economics of it, like what is an economic way of feeding a family of three or four. And I still have her um, Manuel de Cuisine, or uh, cooking manual, which was published in 1922 or 23. And it teaches everything from the nutritive value of various cuts of beef and poultry and uh, lamb and all these different things. It's just this wonderful little thing. Uh, but she went there and went to that school for two years and then... Uh, I think it was like 10 years later, she eventually married a gentleman named uh, Augustine or Augustin Como, who was uh, my maternal grandfather. Hmm. Well, it's interesting because you just mentioned two different names, and um, that's something that I've read in other literature, and you mentioned it in your book as well, is that most everyone within the, the that has an Acadian background kind of all come from about 70 different families or so. I mean, the same, same names keep mm. popping up. Yeah, very much so. And I always like this. There's this. Uh, Acadians tend to um, 
get to you find yourself in this constant state of like seeking one another out. It's this re, this reconnection amongst ourselves. Um, I mean, you find this a lot in in rural areas, especially uh, like in New England, or some other people ask you like, "Well, who's your father or who's your mother?" But people don't ask you that question in the kidding communities. It's like, "Who are your parents? Like, whose child are you?" And so I would be Simon, the son of Hector, the son of Ulysses, the son of William, and the son of Isidore. And so I would say it in that succession. I would say it in French, however. I'm like, Simon, uh, Hector, uh, Ulysse, uh, William, uh, Isidore. Mm-hmm. And then within that, if you and I were to meet and we're both Acadian, oh, you and I might be related. <laughs> so you find this way of over 250 years this need for reconnection is still there, and it's in the way that we introduce ourselves. It's what happens in, in communities of diaspora. It's a sense of, like, longing to find one another again. Mm-hmm. I recently was uh, was working at CBC Radio, and there is a woman who works at Radio Canada, which is the French counterpart to CBC Radio, and her parents grew up in the same community as my mother. And uh, so I met them, and they said, oh, you might know my mother. My mother is... Jeanne, daughter of Augustine, daughter of Etienne, daughter of Justinien, of Vieux-Jo, of Justinien. And she's like, Justinien, Vieux-Jo, of Justinien, we're related. So this thing of constantly finding family connections all over the place is very much part of the Acadian identity. It's like who we are and constantly reconnecting. And it, it makes for a very wonderful way of, of, of being and who your community is. Well, now, you're not just a community, you're a family. That's right. And now you can share recipes and see, wait a minute, that's not how my mother made it, right? <laughs> well, I'm very it, much dealing with that right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking speaking of recipes, there and there are there's much we need to talk about here with the food. Um, before we go to break, I just want to throw out a few that we might be talking about to to tempt our listeners a little bit, because there are the, what I have learned, are the standard um, dishes that people um, refer to when they refer to Acadian food. And mm-hmm. I will let you say, well, of course, frico is one, and uh, the tortillere or the meat pie is another. Um, so g- give me a few other tempting dishes. Well, there is, as you said, there is the frico and mm-hmm. uh for those who, for those who are of Italian ancestry, not the frico as in like the cheese right. uh, accompaniment that is often found that is a completely different thing. Um, there are also the poutine, or not like the poutine in Quebec, that is a completely different beast, but the same word. <laughs> um, if you're talking to Acadians of southwestern Nova Scotia and parts of um, Prince of Island, there is raw pur or raw pie. Um, and also, just even certain um, seasonings, uh, the tradition of salting herbs or salting onions is very much part of the larder of many Acadians, traditionally speaking. And it's these weird little, not weird, but these wonderful little traditions that kind of pop up all over the place. And that, like any diaspora people or any uh, ethnicity, no matter who you are, the the dishes can change ever so slightly from house to house and place to place. And um, I even had a reader once respond to one of my recipes. There was a national newspaper here in Canada who posted a recipe, and someone said, "Oh my God, what are they doing putting carrots in the frico? There should never be carrots in the frico." And I'm just like, 
allowed. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, we're going to talk more about some of these wonderful dishes when we come back after a short break. So stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. You put a lot of care and thought into what you eat. After all, you're a food radio listener. That thoughtfulness goes hand in paw with how you feed your pets. Purposeful pet food doesn't happen by accident. Castor and Pollux scours the earth to carefully select the best organic and responsibly sourced ingredients. New Pristine from Castor and Pollux is the only complete line of pet food made with ingredients that are responsibly raised, caught, or grown. Feed your dog or cat the new standard, like grass-fed beef, wild-caught fish, and vegetables grown without synthetic fertilizers or chemical pesticides. Pristine from Castor and Pollux. Purposeful pet food. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org slash pets. And I will show you just where Hi, we're back, and I'm talking with Simon Thibault, and his book is Pantry and Palate, Remembering and Rediscovering Acadian Food, published by Nimbus Publishing. And Simon, uh, before, uh, well, even a, a couple of days ago, I asked you to um, to write for me what a couple of, of dishes that were your favorites, without even going into all the standard dishes. And one that um, that struck me was you mentioned cornmeal molasses bread. It's a great way to get people into breaking bread on their own, and also because it's an example of the influences that hide amongst Canadian foods. Explain that one for me. What what's what's sure, hiding? Um, <laughs> sure, go ahead. No, the um, uh, sorry, I just had a weird background noise. Um, the Cornmeal molasses, but essentially is, um, I found a few recipes for it, and I thought, okay, cool. And then uh, I was looking through a book of Black Loyalist recipes. Um, where I grew up in Nova Scotia, there are a lot of African Nova Scotians who claim ancestry to be Black Loyalists of the United States. And I was looking through it, and I found the exact same recipe, which I thought, that's interesting. And then I realized that this bread is actually anadama bread, mm-hmm. the same bread that is known throughout Boston as this cornmeal molasses bread. And uh, I just, it just blew my mind that this kind of connection kind of came through of something that became so intrinsically adopted within these communities, uh, these ingredients, the use of ground cornmeal and molasses, that just became part of the everyday larder of these people. But... Um, I, it was amazing just to see how things just kind of transmogrified amongst themselves. But the thing that I liked about it is that as a bread, like I've talked to a lot of people um, who are often intimidated about baking. And 
even though the book is some of history and there are recipes, I wanted people to really feel like they could make these recipes, no matter who you are, no matter what your interest. You have to be able to read these recipes and be able to make them. I think that's super important. So I was lucky enough to have recipe testers and whatnot. And uh, one of the things that I remember when I first started learning to make bread, and I was making very simple bread, not these big open crumb things that, like, everybody's making these days, which are really beautiful breads. But as a beginner baker, that can be incredibly intimidating, especially right. if you're learning to understand what happens in dough. Mm-hmm. And this was a bread that realistically, um, once your hands no longer start sticking to it, from the amount of flour you've added, you know that dough is ready to be let, ready, is ready to be let alone and to rise. Which, as a baker, as a beginner, is an incredibly liberating thing. It's like, I know what I can do now. I have a physical, tactile sensation that I can look for and feel for, which will bring me to be able, the capacity to be able to make bread. And my own mother, who is a wonderful cook, but could never make bread to save her life. She tried three different times and couldn't do it. And I sent her the recipe, and she came to visit me, and she's like, I have a surprise for you. And she had made the bread, and it worked really well. And so that was really wonderful. Huh, that's great. That's a great story. Um, well, that, of course, it's it's studying food history um, and culinary history. It is, it's that amazing time when you see how a recipe can travel from one culture to another. And, and, and that's the fun, I think, of, of learning about all these new cultures. And what I like about your um, writing about your recipes of your family is that rather than giving this broad history of, of a lot of the food of, of a whole culture, it's more local. And yet it is global food because it, they were from original recipes brought from France, and they're ones that, as you said, had so many influences from so many other cultures. Um, the Frico, F-R-I-C-O-T, not to be confused, as yeah. Simon said, with the Italian Frico, which is a little cheese chip, if you will. <laughs> um, describe what a Frico is for us. A frico is essentially the Acadian version of chicken and dumplings. <laughs> um, so it is a very simple uh, chicken soup. And one of the things that I really love is that you will all, in French, the word for poultry or chicken usually tends to be the word poulet, which is a young pullet, realistically speaking. But we always say poule, meaning hen, because Traditionally, you would never have access to a pullet. You would only have old stewing hens, and a frico is a really wonderful way of using that stewing hen. Hmm. And what it is, it's a chicken-based stock, uh, shredded chicken. But within it, you usually would have potatoes, but also oftentimes you would have uh, these little potato dumplings known as poutine. And as I said earlier, not to be confused with the poutine that you find a French fries and gravy from Quebec. That's a completely different beast. And even though I'm French-Canadian, realistically speaking, I'm not a big fan of French fries and gravy and cheese curries, which is heretical to a lot of other French-Canadians, but I'm digressing. <laughs> but these little poutines um, are essentially, you take a potato, you would then wrap the potato, extrude all of the liquid out of it, squeezing it out, and then you would reconstitute that potato pulp, that last potato pulp, or a raw like, like raw, which is to rasp, at all food. Um, you would take that puree and you would reconstitute it with a little bit of hot, 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 hot stock. And then you would make little dumplings out of that. And then you would plop them into your soup. 
and that is the Pusin Nechape as it exists within the Frico, which is that tradition of rasping potatoes is something that the Acadians came in contact with after the expulsion with German populations, which were now living uh, in what is now the Canadian Maritimes. That's where that came from. There's also, um, just a quick side note with the Pusin Nechape, if you were to go to New Brunswick and parts such as Moncton, um, there's also another version of the Putin Rape, just known often colloquially as Putin. It is a very large baseball or softball-sized potato dumpling made of mashed and rasped potatoes with a little bit of salt pork in the middle, and they're boiled and basically until they, like, they're boiled for like 45 minutes to an hour. Hmm. And it's kind of like a, a comforting, homey little dish. But the interesting thing is, there is a very similar dish served in parts of Germany and even in Sweden. There, if you go to parts of Sweden and ask for pike, P-A-U-M-L-A-T L-P, you will get the exact same dish. Interesting. Wow. Uh, well, the the um, the grated potatoes are also show up in um, a lot of the other dishes that are uh, the rapé the rapé dishes, the potato dishes. Yeah, the rapé yeah. pie. Rapé pie, um, right. Yeah, to explain rapi pie for people, it's kind of like, it's one of those dishes that uh, amongst Acadians, if someone's coming to visit, or it's like, it's, it's a big festive, like, it's a festive dish that people would make at, like, large family gatherings and things like that. But it's also the dish that if someone who did not grow up eating it is served, it's always like, this is the test. Will you like this? Will you want to be part of our community? And it's kind of like <laughs> this litmus, this culinary litmus test, because... It essentially has the texture of anywhere between congee or wallpaper paste. <laughs> mashed potatoes mashed a little potatoes. too long, right? Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the, so, yeah, the you take those potatoes and wrap them, <laughs> and then you would uh, reconstitute them with stock, and then add a little bit of meat, either poultry or wild game, and then you would bake that into an oven in a large pan for about two and a half to three hours, basically. <laughs> and it creates this crust on the top, this, like, thick, uh, kind of semi-gelatinous uh, potato in the middle, and then another crust on the bottom. And it's always, yeah, it's very much that culinary litmus test of, will you be part of our community or not? <laughs> and then sometimes seasoned or served with a little drizzle of molasses as well, right? Yeah. Wow, exactly. that, and I, I, that was interesting. Yeah. Well, that's... So that's a question that I have, is that what flavors um, in particular or ingredients do you feel define or characterize a lot of the Acadian dishes? Um, Acadian food is very much defined oftentimes by its rusticness, its simplicity, and the arguably lack of seasoning at times. You're dealing with like I said, a peasant culture, uh, food is a form of subsistence. And so um, if you were to look, you would have like that molasses, like you would have the molasses. Molasses is very much part of that. Uh, we were often seabaring people, and so we would send out salt fish to the Caribbean islands, and, uh, and trade, we would receive molasses um, and other things, usually rum, of course. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, the molasses also... If you were in an Acadian home in New Brunswick, you would not be in an Acadian home without summer savory, which is a form of savory, which uh, is all over the place in uh, 
New Brunswick and Prince Edward Island. Um, if you were in southwestern Nova Scotia, you would definitely have uh, salted green onions. So basically, onions that have been packed in a lot of salt, and it's used as a, liberally as not, well, somewhat liberally as a seasoning in a lot of traditional stews and whatnot. To give instead of just a flat one note salty note, it gives this kind of really green, rounded, oniony note to a dish, which is really quite lovely. Yeah, I'm definitely going to make a batch of salted onions. I got to tell you that this it looks it, it first of all it's so simple. And and yet looks so vibrant and 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 delicious that I'm going to throw it in everything I make. <laughs> you give a very you nice very a very good. nice a description <laughs> of how to make it that on in the book. That's that's great. Um, it, there's another um, you know bread is such a um, uh, an important bread of many fo- any form or in many different forms is is important to most cultures and um, also in the Acadian uh, repertoire. There are different types of bread. You already mentioned the the cornmeal molasses bread. And then there's something called ploy. What are ploy? Mm. I didn't include ploy in the oh. book uh, because it wasn't part of my own family. But okay. ploy <laughs> is a fascinating form of, uh, of bread making because it is a skillet or flatbread. Mm-hmm. Um, Usually made from traditionally made from buckwheat, which is a cover crop which grew very well in, in parts of Atlantic Canada, also known as sarrasin in French or blé noir, black wheat, even though it is technically not a wheat. Um, traditionally, it would have made through a fermentation or sourdough, almost like a sourdough kind of process. Um, but now, if you were to go to parts of Maine and New Brunswick, you will find the ploy, um, and it's essentially I would even jokingly call it Acadian injera. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. because it is this this fermented flat thing that you would just use it to scoop up whatever you're eating with, and it, it's really quite lovely. Yeah, I, that, and that uh, certainly intrigued me. And, it, and I guess I saw pictures of it in my research or you know something. Um, uh, the same with pot en pot, pot en pot, or pot en mm. pot. What is that? Is that basically a, like a frico or another soup, a big uh, bowl of soup? It's it's very much the whole thing of like, or of like, humble peasant subsistence forms of cookery in which everything would be cooked into one pot just because it made more sense. So, po on po, like literally pot in pot. It was just you would cook a lot of dishes dishes in that one large pot because it, there is the questions of like historically speaking, we're talking about economics of scale, uh, economics of just what is available in time and whatnot. So. You will often find those things as well. Wherever you have people working fields, working hard, you will need food that will feed them for a long time. And so those breads, like you mentioned earlier, like that caramel molasses bread or the ploy or the frico, this is food that, or the rapi pie, even. this is food that sticks to and keeps you going for extended periods of time. And also, let's not kid ourselves, these were Catholic families, and so you often have very large families. So you need to feed a lot of people on not necessarily a lot of ingredients. Right, right. Well, and these were, I mean, the, the people originally were pretty much sustenance settlers. I mean, they weren't, they weren't the trappers, right? They weren't the trappers and the merchants. They were, they were, they came and they made do with what they had on the land. So it was very hearty, uh, sustaining food. Completely. But it's, it's just a quick uh, parenthesis to all this. I find interesting the whole the one story that struck with me the most was the story of um, 
tamarind subsistence. Um, as I said, we would send down salt fish to the Caribbean islands, and they would send back molasses, because this is how a lot of people made money with this send food up. But the one that struck me was the thing of mola- uh, the, the tamarind, because people would bring back tamarind. Uh, tam- and, and, that, and I have to say uh, that, that when I read about tamarind in your book, I, I thought, wait a minute, did we suddenly go to another country? What? <laughs> it, was, it surprised me. <laughs> No, totally. Um, I even my own surprise was that I gave my mother a little ca- a tamarind candy from Thailand, and uh, she said, "This reminds me of my childhood." And I'm thinking, "Woman, you grew up in a fishing village of 300 people. Why do you have a memory of eating a <laughs> tropical fruit?" But it was because of that exchange, and it's kind of amazing to see how we often think of now in the 21st century of living within a global village. But that global village existed beforehand. It's just that. The ways from village to village were a little, or from street to street were realistically just a little bit less well paved. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we are here approaching, you know, holiday season. Of course, we just finished uh, the American Thanksgiving. Uh, for holiday, were there any special dishes that you remember from your childhood? Totally, and it's still made every Christmas. Um, every Christmas morning, uh, my mother will have made a large meat pie, uh, but in this case, it's usually made with wild game, specifically wild hare that my father goes hunting for, with a tea biscuit dough uh, as the base for the starch of it. And that was, but any form of meat pie, you go to any Acadian community, any Acadian household, there will be usually some form of meat pie, whether it's made with wild game, or it's made with pork and veal, or it's made with beef. Meat pies, hand pies, to large dishes like the one I mentioned my mother's, all of those things are very, very indicative of the Cadian communities. Hmm. Interesting. Well, of course, I can't end the interview without, of course, talking about tête de cochon. <laughs> Please do. Well, no, you do. Uh, you, you, and you tried. You tried your hand at it, so you can you can tell from experience. I, yeah, I did. Um, it was one of those things of uh, I realized that within this book is I wanted to present culinary history and culinary heritage as a form of pride. But I also recognize the fact that not everybody's going to make every single dish. Not everybody's going to make uh, blood pudding or blood sausage. But the act of uh, going to a pig slaughter, which is no longer necessary, is still part of culinary heritage amongst Acadians, and it's very much echoed amongst our Cajun cousins as well with the boucherie, as they say. Mm-hmm. Um, but the uh, the head was a way of using as much of the animal as possible. We now live in the 21st century. People do not feel the need to eat those things out of forms of subsistence. But my argument was that to truly understand the lives of your ancestors, uh, you need to it's best to understand them and cook like them. And so there is work. There is admittedly a small amount of discomfort in um, taking the meat off of a pig's head, but you turn to appreciate the work that went into these things and the need to feed a family. It, it was, it was a, important for me to put it in there, but I do have to say within the whole thing, writing this book, as I said, there, you said they're my grandmother's recipes, this woman passed away when I was four or five, so I never got to know her. But writing these recipes, doing the research, literally having my hands in everything from dough to the head of a pig to rendering lard, I came to understand who 
who this woman was, but more importantly, the relationship that my mother and my uncle had with this woman. And so I not only came to appreciate my own family in a completely different way that I never would have had access to in any other fashion, but even just my own culture in a way that I never would have gotten to if I hadn't done this book. And for that, I'm incredibly grateful. Well, and, and I'm grateful to you for writing it because it's that's an admirable um, way to look at it and a, and a lovely story. And it also opened a whole world and background of that culture to me and to the rest of us who pick up this book. And I thank you for, for sharing this in the book and your time with me today to explain it. Um, once again, the book is Pantry and Palate, Remembering and Rediscovering Acadian Food by Simon Thibault. Simon, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for taking the time out and for all the effusive praise you raised on the book. It means a lot to me. Good. Well, and I hope that everyone keeps listening, and I want to remind you, too, that, as I mentioned, the holiday season coming upon us, not just during holiday season, but, of course, all year round, we rely on our listeners' help. We're a listener-supported radio, so when you tune in to the radio network, heritageradionetwork.org, there is a beating heart in the upper right-hand corner. I hope you'll consider donating. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Simplecast is a popular hosting and analytics platform that allows podcasters to easily host and publish to apps like Apple Podcasts. If you have a podcast or are looking to create your very first, check it out. Try it for free and save half off your first three months at simplecast.com forward slash heritage.